Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you in part by TRX Dinosaurs. They have innovative puppets, poseable sculptures, and dinosaur animatronics available for your purchase and enjoyment <laughs> at trxdinosaurs.com. And by the Royal Tyrrell Museum. Every year they host experts from around the world to present the latest research happening in the field of paleontology. You can find out more information at tyrrellmuseum.com and view previous speakers on YouTube. This week we have an interview with Brittany Stoneberg from the Western Science Center, Dinosaur of the Day Cosmoceratops, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we'd like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, and Taya. Yeah, thank you, everyone. We really appreciate all of your support. And if you listen to our podcast, which you obviously do, you're listening right now, and you like <laughs> hearing about dinosaurs, and you have friends who like hearing about dinosaurs, please tell them. <laughs> We also offer a number of cool perks for our patrons, which you can find out more about on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Jumping right into the dinosaur news, there's a really good one. There's always a really good one. Yeah, pretty much always. I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, thanks to Chris for sharing this with us on Twitter. We have another dinosaur baby. Last week we had that baby hadrosaur, but this week we have a baby bird slash dinosaur because it's from the Cretaceous. But also all birds are dinosaurs. Yes, but just to be specific, we're talking about birds from the age of dinosaurs <laughs> in this case. And this one, just like last week, you know, that baby hadrosaur was tiny compared to an adult so is this bird. It only weighed about 10 grams, mm. which is about one one thousandth the size of the hadrosaur we talked about last week. So, yes, very small. And being 10 grams or in ounces, one third of an ounce. <laughs> so very, very light. It fossilized really shortly after hatching, which is why it's so tiny. Kind of sad. Yeah. Also super rare because just things don't tend to fossilize when they're that young. I think it's because when things die that young, it's usually because they're getting eaten. Mm. <laughs> and things that are eaten don't really fossilize. They get digested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then also it would be really fragile too. So you could imagine getting into the right sediment to pr preserve this really fragile bone would be pretty unlikely. So... Something happened just right, and this guy got fossilized. <laughs> Good for us, not for it. Yes. Unlike the hadrosaur that we talked about last week, this dinosaur is allometric, and that means that the skull is large in proportion to the body, which would have changed as it grew up. And it also means that it didn't really look like a full-grown bird. There were details like the sternum wasn't ossified, it was still partly cartilage, and the tail wasn't fused as they expected to see for a bird even of that age. And that means that it couldn't fly yet, most likely. I guess there's a chance that it had something special going on so it could fly, but it doesn't seem like it. The researchers, led by Fabian Knoll and others, and by the way, this was published in Nature Communications, narrowed down the species to a couple specific types but they didn't identify it specifically, mostly because it was so young that there's a chance that as it developed, it might have grown into a couple existing species, and it's hard to identify which, if any, it would have developed into. So they say it could have been Concornus or Iberomesornus or a new species. They named it, <laughs> this is a really bad one, MPCMLH. 26189A slash B. A slash B. Yeah. So I'll break it down for you. Okay. The MPCM is for the Museo de Paleontología de Castilla-La Mancha, which is in Spain. So that's basically the museum where it's going to be housed. The LH part is because the specimen was found in the Las Hoyas site in Spain. And I'm... I'm really just assuming this because they didn't specifically say it 
but it'd be pretty weird if these things stood for anything else. <laughs> and the 26189 is just an identification number because you have to give all the different things that come from that site a different number. And then the A slash B I've never seen before. I'm sure other people are familiar with it, but it's for the slab and counter slab that the bones were found in. So this specific specimen, it was kind of like sandwiched in a layer of rock and then if you split the rock open into the two halves some of the pieces of rock are stuck in one half of the fossil and some are stuck in the other half hmm. so there are these two slabs that you could kind of fit back together and you'd have it the way that it was buried but when you open it up you've got the slab and counter slab some bones in each I was thinking like those Wonder Ball things. What's in this fossil ball? <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like that or geode or something. Yeah. So they think that it's from the early Cretaceous because that's when that site is from, which puts it about 125 million years old. And that's pretty old for a bird. They call it an enantiornithine. And those are the birds that most still had teeth as well as clawed wings so they're still pretty dinosaur-y looking, you know, because you don't think of birds as having claws and, yeah. <laughs> and teeth. But yeah, so these guys are kind of halfway in between what looks like a modern bird and what looks like a dinosaur. And the fossil is really well preserved. It's got the skull and almost all of the body. In fact, it's quicker to just say what's missing, which the researchers said were just the feet, most of the hands, and the tip of the tail. Oh, pretty complete. But they knew it had claws. Yeah, I should clarify. I was just describing the enantiornithine group generally, uh, okay. not necessarily this guy specifically, because I didn't see anything about teeth or claws. I'm not sure when dinosaur teeth develop, if they're born with teeth or not. I didn't see anything about teeth in this paper. I searched through it and didn't see anything about teeth, but that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't have them. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just didn't mention them, or maybe they didn't fossilize, or maybe they hadn't grown in yet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But it's really not that surprising that the whole thing fossilized once you know that it's only two centimeters by three and a half centimeters hmm. for the entire fossil, which is less than one by two inches, or to put it in relative terms, less than the size of two postage stamps put hmm. next to each other. It's very, very it's small tiny. fossil. Yeah. It's like shorter than any of the fingers on your hand, just tiny. It also made me think, since it is smaller than like a postage stamp and a half, they should make a two-scale stamp <laughs> of this dinosaur fossil. That would be so cool. That uh, would be. It would obviously be a first because nobody makes two-scale <laughs> dinosaur fossil stamps, but it would be awesome. Since it's still sort of in the slab, I'm guessing that they're never really going to prepare it all the way out because it's so tiny and fragile. They measured it at the European Synchrotron, which is one of my favorite places, as a reminder, <laughs> it's a super high power CT scanner or really a radiation generator. It's like a giant tokamak or any of those other energy accelerators and a big donut shaped thing. And then there are all these little labs sitting off around the perimeter. I think there's like 70 of them or something. And they split off a little bit of the beam and then they can use it for really high power x-ray. So that's what they did with this guy because it's still buried partly in rock and really hard rock. <laughs> so you need a nice powerful CT scan. It's also really high resolution. It went all the way down to 719 nanometers or about one one thousandth of a millimeter. So pretty fine resolution, which is useful because they found half of a preserved brain case on one of the slabs. The other one, the other half is in kind of bad shape, but they could get some details about the brain case, which is really interesting because it helps to determine, you know, what sort of senses the bird slash dinosaur might have been using. You know, if it had a big part of its brain for sight, then you know that it was really interested in seeing things more than hearing things or something like that. But this whole part of the brain case looks like it's about one millimeter long. <laughs> <laughs> so it's useful that your scanning can go down to one one thousandth of a millimeter so you can at least get a little bit of resolution of that brain case. And then looking at its vertebrae, they look like they're only about half a millimeter long. So it's just such a tiny thing. Yeah. How do you <laughs> even work with that? Well, uh, I guess scanners and all that. But. Yeah, but they did prepare it. 
some. So like, I don't know, they must have very steady hands and some good magnification because mm-hmm. that is amazing. There wasn't any evidence of feathers in the fossil, but they said that maybe it did have feathers when it died or maybe it was still featherless. Like it could have been born and grown feathers later because we really don't know what kind of feather development early birds had. Yeah. But interestingly, they included a really cool artistic rendering with the paper and it does have feathers in that paper. So I guess they're assuming that it's a bird. It had wings. It's probably going to fly. So it probably had feathers. And the other funny thing about this picture is in the corner, they have a little scale image. And rather than a lot of times with dinosaurs, you'll see a silhouette of a person. They have a silhouette of a cockroach. <laughs> and it's basically the same size as a cockroach. <laughs> Such a tiny little bird. Hmm. Were cockroaches around back then? Yes, just barely. It looks like they evolved about 145 million years ago. Hmm. Weird. Yep. That's interesting. I never realized that cockroaches weren't around the whole time dinosaurs were around. I just think of insects as having been around for like a super long time, but (laughs) not all of them. Now you can't get rid of them. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. They definitely survived the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Moving on to another flying dinosaur. There's another paper also from Nature Communications and... Again, thanks to Chris for sharing this with us on Twitter. (laughs) A lot of similarities. This one's all about Archaeopteryx, and it was written by Dennis Voten and others. And really what they were looking at was how well Archaeopteryx could fly. So they went back to the European Synchrotron. I guess this is probably a different group. So they went to the European Synchrotron. (laughs) And they, just like the last group, were looking inside the bones of a fossil. This time they took three different specimens of Archaeopteryx and what they ended up finding was that Archaeopteryx is pretty similar to modern flying birds, at least when it comes to those that use short distance flapping. I was going to go into a rabbit hole about these different types of distances, but in the paper one of the extra materials had different types of long distance, short distance, flapping, gliding, things like that. They had four different research papers that they were citing these different types of flying, and it seemed like they almost always all had different answers. So (laughs) it seems like the terms are pretty loosely defined in a lot of gray area, so it's not really worth explaining. Basically, the BBC said it flew in short bursts like a pheasant, and I think that's a pretty good description. When I heard that it flew in short bursts, though, the first thing I thought of was wild turkeys, because in the U.S., I think we have a lot more of those than pheasants. I don't even know if pheasants are here. I don't think so. I think that's a European kind of bird. But both pheasants and turkeys usually walk and run, but they can fly quickly for short distances if they need to. And apparently roadrunners fly, too. That was also on their list. I was surprised. Yeah. Looney Tunes does not depict that at all. No. Think of the things that that roadrunner could have done to the coyote if it was just flying a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason that they think it could fly is largely because of the structure of the bones. And they looked at the balance of strength versus weight and the specific stresses that they expected from flapping. And that's what looked to have a lot in common with this pheasant or turkey sort of bird. They also said that all three specimens of the Archaeopteryx seem to have the same sort of ability to fly, and they think that they probably used it in order to evade predators or cross physical barriers, but no matter why they were flying, it looks like they were actively using their wings to fly and not just gliding, which is a pretty big departure from what we've seen in some of the previous reports, because remember Archaeopteryx has feathers all down its legs and on its huge tail, all things that are not great for aerodynamics when you're flying. But pheasants actually kind of have a similar huge tail. So does a turkey. They got those big fluffy tail feathers. And the researchers say that Archaeopteryx does definitely have the wrong body for modern wing flapping. Its arms just don't go in the right direction Mm. the way that you want to flap wings. So they believe that it flapped its wings in a different direction and, you know, maybe less efficiently but they're going to have to do some modeling in order to kind of get more information onto this. Makes sense. 
Maybe find some more bones. Yeah, it always helps. <laughs> <laughs> they also said that there's a similar shift in pterosaur flapping geometry as they're expecting to find in Archaeopteryx flapping geometry. So I guess early pterosaurs had this sort of awkward flap that's not ideal, but then as they evolved, it got more and more into the position like modern birds. So I guess maybe we saw the same sort of thing happening with early birds. It would make perfect sense. And similarly, there was a, a shift from long tails to short tails in pterosaurs, just like we saw in birds too. So I guess there's a lot we might be able to learn about early dinosaur bird evolution by looking at pterosaurs. In some other news, the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Scientists recently published about a bone analysis of specimens from an iguanodon bone bed. And maybe you remember this from our episode about iguanodon, but between 1878 to 1881, about 30 iguanodons were found in a coal mine in Bernissart. And one of the specimens was smaller than the rest and was thought to be a juvenile. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. Turns out it's really not like the other. <laughs> there were a few hypotheses about which species it belonged to. Went around that maybe it was Iguanodon mantelli, Iguanodon bernisartensis, Iguanodon irfieldensis. And then in 2008, Gregory Paul said that it was Dolodon bampingi, though others have said that there's no difference between Dolodon bampingi and Mantellosaurus irfieldensis. But anyway... Kohnstein analyzed the specimen while investigating the cause of death of these iguanodons, the 30 or so in the bone bed. And it turns out that all of the animals, even the smaller ones, were adults. And that means that the smaller specimen is definitely not an iguanodon, but something else. Hmm. Though they don't necessarily know what that is yet. But they also found that they died a fast and collective death, possibly by poison from swamp gases, actually hydrogen sulfide. Also known as the silent killer. That sulfur will get you. Yeah. And Stein said, quote, Also, the sediments within the bones contain high amounts of pyrite. Bacteria or algae in the swamp could have produced the toxic gas. End quote. So, and the animals were found on their side with their heads tilted back, which was another sign of poisoning. Yeah, some people say that. Other people think that dinosaurs just died that way for some reason. Sort of like rigor mortis kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that there's a lot of pyrite in them because that really messes up fossils. Or makes them pretty. Well, it slowly makes them explode because oh. it absorbs water and it like shatters them from the inside. But I guess in the right circumstance, it could make it pretty. <laughs> That's cool, though. This was originally found in the 1870s and people are still studying it. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of like Archaeopteryx, a lot of those finds are from the 1800s, too. Mm-hmm. Moving on to some museum news, on March 29th, Phil Curry will be giving a talk on Sornithelestes, which is a dromaeosaur, at 7.30 p.m. at Red Deer College in Alberta, Canada. The only known complete specimen was found in 2014 in Dinosaur Provincial Park, and it's now on loan to Japan's National Museum of Science and Technology, and there's a team of University of Alberta scientists studying the specimen. The talk is free, but you do have to pick up tickets beforehand, so if you're in the area, you should go. Nice. Yeah. In Arizona, the Arizona Museum of Natural History in Mesa, Arizona, has a couple of events coming up. On March 30th, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., they're going to have their annual dino egg hunt. And there will be live animal encounters and a scavenger hunt for eggs. Hmm. And then on April 13th, from 6.30 to 11 p.m., it's their beer and bones event. <laughs> A 21-plus event with craft beer. They also have something called Speed Data Scientist. <laughs> and dinosaur caricatures and pop-up science and live animal stations. That's a lot of things you don't usually see at a museum. And Very while cool. drinking beer. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to those events, the museum has something called Dinosaur Mountain, which has these animatronic dinosaurs, a three-story indoor waterfall, and a flash flood that happens every 20 minutes, as well as dinosaur skeletons on display. Cool. Yeah. I have to check that museum out. Yeah. In Overland Park, Kansas, the museum at Prairie Fire has a new traveling exhibit called Modern Dinosaurs, with a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Is it about birds? 
No. Oh. It's about how our understanding of science comes from questioning what used to be taken for granted. And that's okay. why they have the question mark. Because <laughs> modern dinosaurs are birds. I could answer the question for them, but I guess it's rhetorical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More of a state. <laughs> so there have dinosaur skeletons, including Albertosaurus, a T-Rex skull, and a Potosaurus hind leg, and also a display of three dromaeosaurs attacking a pachycephalosaurus. Hmm. The exhibit runs through May 28th and costs about $10 for admission. And in Michigan, Hillsdale College's Daniel M. Fisk Museum of History has a new Triceratops on display nicknamed Donna. I don't know where the name Donna came from, but Donna is joining their Edmontosaurus, Linda. Mm-hmm. I also don't know where that name came from, but I'm sure there's good stories there. Ladies. Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Donna's more than 60% complete and was found in 2015 by an amateur fossil collector. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's a really complete triceratops. Mm -hmm. Usually it's just a skull and that's pretty much all you get. Not Donna. That Donna doesn't mess around. <laughs> you like this next one, Garrett. So the Natural History Museum in London is launching a new VR experience Ooh. this spring where you can have Sir David Attenborough giving you a tour. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's called Hold the World. You'll be able to virtually pick up, hold, and enlarge specimens. Hmm. And Attenborough talks about a stegosaurus, blue whale, trilobite, dragonfly, butterfly, and pterosaur. And it lasts about 20 minutes to an hour. And at first it'll be a standalone app on Microsoft Windows Mixed Reality and then later launch on the Sky VR app on Google Daydream View, Samsung Gear VR, and Oculus Rift. Oh, cool. We got a couple of those. We just got to wait a few extra months. Yeah. <laughs> we did see the one when they made the Titanosaur back when it was just the Titanosaur. Mm -hmm. The one from Argentina that later became Patagotitan. Yes. And he was like on a scissor lift or something next to it, hmm. kind of explaining what it was as it walked by. That was a pretty good one. He does so much. Yeah. It's never going to slow down. Next. Portugal, near Lisbon, has a new dinosaur theme park that opened last month, and they already had 20,000 visitors. The park is called Dino Park Lorenha, and the park's museum has a fossilized nest of dinosaur eggs that were found in a nearby beach back in 1993. Mm. And there's also 120 life-size dinosaur models in the surrounding woodland. I think we heard about that one before. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah, before they opened. I didn't realize they already opened. Isn't there a Lauren Hanasaurus too or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and the formation. Nice. Yeah. Good place to put a museum. <laughs> We've got an update on the Bayville sauropod dinosaur from New Jersey. The one that like keeps getting destroyed by passing vehicles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been three years and the committee that was tasked with raising money to restore the dinosaur reached their goal of $15,000, which is good. Mm-hmm. The dinosaur is going to stay where it is at the Heritage Square Professional Center. And just a quick recap, the Bayville dinosaur might have been built for the 1925 film The Lost World, the silent film. Huh. Though it's not clear if it was in the film or if it was just used for publicity, but yeah. either way, pretty cool. That seems more likely because that was all basically stop motion. It'd be hard to do stop motion with a big <laughs> like plaster <laughs> dinosaur. But maybe. Unless it was meant know. to be something imposing. Yeah, like they were just shooting it from behind or something briefly with people in yeah. front of it. Or it's in the background of something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't looking for that particular one. Yeah. We watched. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, this sauropod, as you can imagine, has gone through a number of refurbishments. At one point it had spikes. Hmm. Another point in time it had green eyes that lit up and a red mouth before the decapitation it's been decapitated i think a couple times <laughs> yeah. i don't remember just accidentally hit by trucks now the dinosaur has a more anatomically correct head thanks to a local sculptor brian hanlon so that's good and the restoration is going to fix a chunk of the dinosaur's face that's missing as well as a large gash that it has in its neck <laughs> jeez <laughs> Maybe it's self-driving cars, so we stop. Well, maybe they could put a barricade or something. Maybe. 
I th- I'm imagining that it's kind of like those signs that are too close to the freeway mm-hmm. that occasionally just get bashed. Mm-hmm. Like its head is just like a little too close to the road and it just gets clipped once in a while. Yeah, could be. Must be really close because it sounds like it happened a lot. Yeah. There's this story of this couple in Washington State that has a Deinonychus on their front porch. And it's life-size. And it's green and scaly. And the couple, Tom and Sue Runyon, got the dinosaur seven years ago from an importer in Texas. And Tom said, quote, we tell visitors that they run wild in Texas and we got it stuffed. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Deinonychus stands on top of a weather vane, which looks like a tree branch. And in the picture... The couple standing next to the dinosaur and Tom's holding their small dog right up against the Deinonychus's open mouth, which has a bunch of sharp teeth, and the dog does not look amused. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. In Singapore, they've got an inflatable pink dinosaur named Dino that's popping up at national monuments from now until April 22nd Hmm. every weekend as part of an effort by the National Heritage Board to raise awareness of monuments. Yeah, I I mean, we went to Singapore. I don't remember any national monuments. That's a good point. (laughs) I mean, there were cool things and places we went to, but I didn't know any of them were monuments. Huh. If Dino was there telling us they were national monuments, we would definitely remember. remember. Yeah. Well, yeah, so Dino's going to different monuments every weekend, and then they're encouraging people to take photos with the dinosaur and then share on social media, and you can win prizes, like limited edition toys of Dino and other merchandise. I was thinking maybe you'd win Dino. Oh, but they might want to reuse Dino. Yeah. And the National Heritage Board shares clues to Dino's next locations every Thursday on their Facebook page, so you can try to plan ahead. Mm-hmm. Then you have to have a list of all the national monuments. Oh, yeah, that's and true. thereby forcing everybody to memorize all the national monuments. <laughs> <laughs> What's really funny, though, is what Dino looks like. Dino is roughly the shape of a dinosaur, Mm -hmm. like a cute little theropod thing, but he looks like an ice cream dinosaur in the picture. By that, I mean he's got this waffle cone-like tail (laughs) and a pink strawberry, a strawberry pink body, which looks like it kind of melts a little bit onto the tail. Is it supposed to look like ice cream? I could find nothing else about it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not out there. If if someone who's listening happens to know more about Dino, I'd love to know the story behind that. <laughs> <laughs> but D- yeah, Dino's also got these white, like, sprinkle-like splotches on the strawberry hmm. pink body, and then what looks like could be chocolate scales on his back. Hmm. Yeah. Either that or you're really hungry when you were looking at Dino no. and just imagining all of this. No, no, no. I, I can show you the picture. Yeah, you're right. That does look pretty dinosaur. I think it looks kind of like Godzilla, too. The shape of its back spikes yeah. of that Godzilla-y But it's, it's mostly shape. the tail that looks like a waffle cone. It does, yeah. Yeah. And he's roaring. But <laughs> he doesn't look intimidating at all. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty goofy. <laughs> if anybody else wants to see a picture of it, we have the link in our show notes. Yes, definitely check it out. And if you know more about Dino... Please tell us. What happened to it or why it was made (laughs) this way. (laughs) So we've got one last item. And thank you to Stephen who shared this one with us via Facebook. So there's a podcast called Stuck in the 90s, which is a 90s nostalgia podcast. And they're doing a 90s dinosaur march madness. And it's a single elimination bracket. They started with 64 dinosaurs from the 90s. As of our recording, they're only through round two, so we don't have the final results yet, but I've, I've been voting. Um, <laughs> well, they've divided it up into two conferences, the Mesozoic and the Pangean Conference. In the Mesozoic Conference, they've got Triassic Division and Cretaceous Division, and then Pangean's got the Laurasian and Gondwana Divisions. What? Yeah, I just noticed that one. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> well, especially because all of the dinosaurs that you can choose from, they're supposed to be characters from the 90s, although I think some of them are from the 80s and some of them aren't technically dinosaurs, but still yeah. cool. Like all the main characters from Land Before Time, so, you know, Littlefoot. They had Dino from the Flintstones, but Dino didn't make it to the second round. I just checked. And they have a lot of characters from the TV show Dinosaurs. 
it seemed like they really liked Fran Sinclair because in the first round they put her against no one. Hmm. <laughs> but now she's against one of the characters from Land Before Time. I don't remember which one, but I remember I had a hard time deciding. And then some of the other tough choices, there was Ducky from Land Before Time versus the Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park. Oh, that's who it was. Ducky made it because now it's Ducky versus Fran. Mm. They had Green Yoshi versus Robbie Sinclair. I don't think either of them made it. They got Sharp Tooth from Land Before Time versus Raptors from Jurassic Park. <laughs> that was a difficult one choice. They also had Dinosaur Jr. Rock Band, which yeah. is also not Dinosaur, Weird. but anyway, I didn't see them in the second round. They also had a lot of other characters that I, you know, you just don't think about as often. Like, there's a dinosaur from Dragon Ball Z, there's Rex from Toy Story, and then there's the dinosaur from We're Back, A Dinosaur Story. I didn't realize how bad they looked. Somebody posted a picture of them recently, and I was like, oh man, that art. <laughs> Not good. All of them have like one tooth oh, really? for some reason, like one goofy tooth off cute. to the side. Yeah. Children's it, movie. I guess it makes them look dumb or something. I don't know what the deal is. Did they look goofier than Barney characters? Because there were also Barney characters, which I saw none of the Barney characters in round two. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, and they also had Reptar from Rugrats, which I appreciated. We'll have to see how this goes. We'll follow it through. Who wins? Yeah. So before we get into our interview, we've got another word from TRX Dinosaurs, which, as Garrett mentioned at the top of the show, they make innovative puppets and posable sculptures and animatronics, and everything looks so realistic and just it's so well done. They've got a lot of posts of their works in progress on their Instagram at TRX Dinosaurs, and so the latest one as of this recording is a work in progress baby T-Rex puppet. There's so many good details, and yeah, it just looks really great. Yeah, I like its big old feet. That's my favorite part. My favorite part of almost all of their sculptures is the feet. Yeah. I think it's partly because they're so bird-like, but also because they're so much more intense than modern birds with the huge claws, and they're just generally massive compared to the rest of the animal. Although, I was looking at one of the velociraptors the other day, and that sickle claw being so high, I mean, I'm, I know it's accurate, but how it's just lifted off the ground looks so uncomfortable because it's just so different from our feet. But you got to keep that toe sharp, that toe claw. You can do some good old stabbing with it. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it was in trees a lot of the times and it didn't matter as much. I don't know. But if you're interested in finding out more about these dinosaurs, you want to see some of the cool videos that they've posted, you can go to their Instagram at TRX Dinosaurs. And if you would like to order your own, like say you heard about that Deinonychus that the couple had on their porch and you want a Deinonychus of your own, <laughs> <laughs> then head to trxdinosaurs.com and fill out their order form. So now we're going to go on to our interview with Brittany Stoneberg. Today we are chatting with Brittany Stoneberg, who's the Marketing and Events Specialist at Western Science Center, and she's also a co-founder of Cosplay for Science. You may remember we talked with Gabe Santos about that in a previous episode, and she works on just a bunch of awesome projects. So you have this kind of unusual background for paleontology. Can you tell us what you did before you started at Western Science Center and how you ended up in science? Yeah, so um, I actually graduated from college with a degree in English, not a degree in geology or biology or what you would normally expect someone who is working in paleontology to graduate with. Um, and I graduated with that in 2012. I had loved paleontology since I was a kid. Um, definitely was the type of child who excitedly went to museums and looked at rocks all the time. But as I got older, I didn't have the best math and science grades. And I was definitely encouraged to take an alternate path. I happened to be very adept at writing. So I was encouraged to go um, towards English and history and literature and writing, which I liked. So I didn't complain too much about that. Uh, but it definitely felt like as I got older that, you know, science wasn't going to be an option for me. And so when I got to college, I majored in English, um, did a little time in journalism as well, mm -hmm. did editing, things like that. And when I graduated from college, I, you kind of have that postgraduate malaise where you're not quite sure what you want to do. You've had this structure of 
school taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a couple of years working at various colleges and universities, feeling like I wasn't quite doing what I wanted to do. And so I actually visited the La Brea Tar Pits with my friends who were tired of my moping and knew that a museum <laughs> would fix that. <laughs> they took me to the La Brea Tar Pits and at La Brea, they have this bubble where you can see back into the lab, you can see their uh, researchers working on fossils. And I saw that and I had an epiphany and I realized that's what I want to do. I want to be in there. I want to work in a museum somehow. And at the time, I had no idea how I was going to make that work. All I knew is that I wanted to work in a museum, that I wanted to revive my childhood love of paleontology, and I was not sure how I was going to make that happen. Uh, what I actually ended up doing was I happened to live in Hemet, California, which is a town about 80 miles east of Los Angeles. And that is home to where I work now, the Western Science Center, which is the largest natural history museum in Riverside County. And it was established in 2006 and holds a lot of Ice Age Pleistocene fossils such as mastodons, mammoths, ground sloths that are all the result of a excavation project that happened in the 90s for Diamond Valley Lake. Mm-hmm. So I found it on the internet, had visited when I was very young, but didn't re- remember very much about it. And I put in a volunteer application and I ended up becoming a volunteer And then somehow down the line, about a month or two later, they decided, okay, this work you're doing for free, we'll pay you for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So they actually actually brought me on board first as a visitor services associate. And now almost three years later, I am the marketing event specialist. So I handle outreach. I handle on-site, off-site events like the Inland Empire Science Festival or Ice Age Soiree, which is a 21 plus party. Mm -hmm. I uh, handle all of our marketing and press releases, all of our social media accounts. So basically my job is to talk a lot about the museum and tell people why it's cool. And so that's kind of how I got involved in paleontology. I just decided if I couldn't do it as a job, I would do it for free. And then it did end up leading to a career. (laughs) And so now I have my hands in a bunch of different projects. I'm doing a little bit of research and I'm working my dream job. That's awesome. And your background probably helped too with communication and English and and journalism. Yeah. I find that it um, gives me a different perspective and it helps me be able to tell people about the research that's going on in the museum, the things that we're doing, and try and make it understandable and relatable to them. Sometimes it can be difficult to distill science into something that's digestible for the public. And as a museum, you know, the public is our audience. And so that's what we're trying to do is make sure that they understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, why it's important and why they should support it. And I think having that background in humanities really gives me the tools and experience I need to make that possible. Yeah, that's great. Are you allowed to tell us about what you're working on research-wise, or is it too early? Um, I could talk a little bit about it. <laughs> I am currently working on, we have a, it's called the Harveston Collection. So it is a collection of uh, Rancho Librarian Ice Age Pleistocene fossils from a town about 10, 15 miles away from the museum called uh, Murrieta. Mm-hmm. And so right now we are looking at all of the fossils that are in that collection we are, you know, figuring out what's there and what it means and what it means for the environment back thousands of years ago. Um, so we're also going to be presenting on that, hopefully, if the abstract is accepted, at GSA Rocky Mountain and Cordilleran uh, section meeting in May nice. um, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so that's what I'm currently working on. I'm really, um, I'm just getting my toes wet in terms of research. Um, that's definitely not where my background lies. I actually went to my boss, Dr. Alton Dooley, the executive director of the museum and said, hey, I would like to get started in research. Do you know about a research methods course that I could take? Because the research methods course I took in college for English is not very useful when you're trying to apply it to a science. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, oh, well, you should probably just do it. And that's pretty much the answer I got from any paleontologist I talked to about dipping my toes in research is I really just need to get started. So most of what I'm doing on the project, um, this is being spearheaded by Dr. Alton Dooley, paleontologist Eric Scott, and our one of our educators here at the museum, Brett Dooley. What I'm mostly doing is just taking, um, we want to make everything in the collection 
open access and 3D scanned. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on 3D scanning everything and 3D printing it, as well as looking at some microvertebrates. Fun. Nice. Yeah, it's really (laughs) fun. I actually really enjoy research. I wasn't sure if I was going to, but it's definitely something that I like doing. (laughs) We've talked to Gabe before about uh, cosplay for science, but would love to hear uh, your involvement in it and also just any other projects you're working on. (laughs) Yeah, so cosplay for science is a big one. So, you know, trying to marry pop culture and outreach and science education. So that's fun. So I help Gabe and Michelle with that. Um, I'm also working with, and we haven't really announced it yet, so I'll double check he's cool with this, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because we're (laughs) almost done with it. I'm also um, working with David Moscato of the Comet Descent podcast right now. Mm -hmm. We are working on a, a collab project called Pathways to Paleontology where him and I both had an interesting conversation at the last Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting where we both commiserated over the fact that I am a person with an English degree. You know, I'm a psychomer outreach marketing person who is now working in paleontology. Does that make me a paleontologist? I don't know. I feel weird sometimes when the label is applied to me. And he said he actually had it from the opposite direction where he had gone to school for paleontology, but is now working as a writer. Mm-hmm. So does he, he's like, do I label myself as a paleontologist? <laughs> where, do, where do we all fall on the spectrum? And so we're working on a Twitter project where we're going to talk to people who also have unique or unusual backgrounds in paleontology, because there's a lot of us. There's paleo artists, there's awesome people like you guys who run a podcast, you know, where do we fall, you know, in this career of paleontology and, you know, what's the story behind that? So that's something we're working on right now as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do find that like very few people tend to think of themselves as paleontologists. It's like you need all of the above, like a PhD <laughs> and to be working for a university researching yeah. and publish, currently publishing papers. And then it's like, okay, I feel comfortable calling myself a paleontologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it like, what point do you start call, using that word? You know, I work in a museum. Most of it is science communication, but I do a little bit of research on the side. I will be going to do field work like this weekend locally. So it's like, mm-hmm. am I? <laughs> <laughs> and I and I find that I'm very loose with applying that label to other people and very, you know, it's that imposter syndrome thing mm-hmm. where I'm very reticent to apply it to myself. So mm-hmm. him and I were talking about that and that was the genesis of that project. So <laughs> kind of have to talk about dinosaurs at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it is an I Know Dino podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I may be a mammal person, but I can I can see the writing on the wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about the dinosaurs at Western Science Center? Oh, of course. So um, like I said before, the Western Science Center was originally built to house the fossils that were found at Diamond Valley Lake. So... The geology in California is too young to to have a lot of dinosaur material, so there are no dinosaurs that were found in Diamond Valley Lake. It's all Ice Age stuff. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have dinosaurs. So we do have one current exhibit called The Dinosaur Hunter that focuses on dinosaur fossils that were collected by uh, the late Harley Garbani, who is a local fossil hunter who worked with the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles and worked with our museum, and his wife has graciously donated a large portion of his collection to our museum, and we have much of that back in the collections, and some of that is on display, so we do have um, Tyrannosaurus material from that collection, we have Ceratopsian, so a baby Triceratops is in there, a Hadrosaur, so just because we are known as a Ice Age Museum does not mean that we are not displaying, researching, or curating dinosaur fossils. Mm -hmm. We just hired last year our new curator, Wahoo. (laughs) Uh, His name is Dr. Andrew uh, McDonald. And so he's all about dinosaurs. He's researching hadrosaurs and ceratopsians. He named Hippo Draco. He's also on Twitter, at Hippo Draco. Finally got (laughs) on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> um, so, he, so he's doing a lot of dinosaur material now as well. Actually, him and the rest of the research team today, while I'm interviewing with you guys, are at NHMLA looking at the dinosaur collection nice. over there uh, to support our own research. And so he is looking into a lot of different dinosaur material that he brings back from his field area in New Mexico. 
So that's something that the Western Science Center is really getting ready to do. Um, for the longest time, we weren't able to do our own field expeditions, but that is changing now with the onboarding of uh, Dr. McDonald. So he will be doing field work out in New Mexico this summer for the museum and be collecting lots more dinosaur fossils. <laughs> we do have a dinosaur exhibit opening next month. So if anybody is in the Southern California area, would love for you guys to come and see it. It's the uh, new exhibit on horned dinosaurs called uh, The Great Wanders. Nice. Horned dinosaurs. So, you know, it's right there in the title. Yep. <laughs> so it's on ceratopsians. And so with um, contributions by the ALF Museum of Paleontology, you know, Dr. Andrew Farkey over there, mm -hmm. and uh, other museums, we have some great material to show off to really show, you know, the difference between the different types of ceratopsians, what it means that... You know, there was a tooth possibly found in Mississippi and what that means for their distribution mm -hmm. and what the difference is between centrosaurs and chasmosaurs, which are two different types of ceratopsians. So <laughs> we're looking at all that. It's going to be a hallway exhibit that opens on March 24th. And so we'll have a opening reception for members on the 23rd. And Dr. McDonald will also be giving a talk on the 24th. So definitely come to opening day and hear him chat about dinosaurs because it's going to be really fun. Nice. Yeah, so definitely more dinosaurs. You know, I'm, I'm a mammal person. I, lo I love me some mammals. <laughs> yes. We are definitely getting more dinosaur material, and I don't have to disappoint children when they come in anymore saying, sorry, there were no dinosaurs found at Diamond Valley Lake. <laughs> so well, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you do have some really cool mammal displays, too, though, with all the mastodons and mammoths and all that stuff. That's actually a good opportunity. I was thinking when you mentioned the chasmosaurs and the centrosaurs, we talk a little bit about the differences there. Maybe you could tell us a, the difference between a mastodon and a mammoth. Yeah, totally. So, you know, uh, when you see a mastodon and a mammoth side by side, as we do in our own exhibit hall, you look at it and you say, okay, those both look like some kind of elephant. What's the difference? You know? <laughs> and it doesn't help that they also have similar sounding names either. <laughs> So there's a couple of different differences. A mastodon is shorter and stockier than we would consider a mammoth to be. Uh, the mastodons at our uh, museum are often about 12 feet tall to shoulder. So they're beefier and meatier in terms of their body plan. Um, they also have straighter tusks. So, you know, you've, if you've seen a mammoth tusk, which I'm sure you have, you know, they have these gigantic, beautiful curved tusks. Well, mastodon tusks are much straighter. They also had completely different diets. And so they had completely different tooth structures. So if you look at a mammoth tooth, um, and it's, it's going to have these flat, planed ridges, whereas you look at um, a mastodon tooth, it has these bigger lobes to it. And so a mammoth is eating things like grasses, and so it's what we call a grazer, whereas a mastodon is a browser, so it's eating things like seeds and fruits and nuts and plants and things like that. So even though they look very similar, there's enough differences that we could say they are completely different animals. They're not even that closely related. <laughs> so, you know, me, I love, I love my mastodons. We're, <laughs> we're definitely about the underdogs here at Western Science Center. Yeah. And, you know, we, we love our mastodons. So mammoths are cool. Mammoths are cool. I will say that. <laughs> but I feel like there's a lot that we don't know about mastodons. There's a lot that we can learn about them. And I just think they're neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like it was for our listeners, we got to um, Brittany gave us a tour of the museum a few months ago, and it was amazing. Like it's such a cool space, and that was the first time I even thought about differences between yeah, I mastodons think I thought and mammoths. Mammoth was just a common name for a mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can because you can see things pretty much side by side. You can oh, tell yeah. the differences. Yeah, because you have that display where you have a mastodon and then yeah. right next to it you have a mammoth and you can really yep. notice a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, having them side by side really gives people a point of comparison. When I do outreach events, I usually bring um, casts of their teeth because that's the easiest way of telling the difference without me having to lug two gigantic skulls <laughs> with me, which I have done. We have casts of both, you know, a Colombian mammoth jaw and a mastodon jaw. So I have brought the whole thing with me to offsite events. But generally, it's easier for people if I just bring both of the teeth, show them off and say, okay, if I'm digging out in the dirt, and I'm wondering if I have found a mastodon or a mammoth, if I got a tooth, I can tell right off the bat. Nice. <laughs> yeah. 
Bastions are a big part of our of our museum here. Um, the area where they were found, this whole area of Hemet is often called the Valley of the Mastodons. And that was the impetus for one of our exhibits called the Valley of the Mastodons, where as far as we know, it is one of the largest exhi uh, exhibit of Mastodons on display right now. And so I like to liken it to we turned our museum on its side, shook the collections until all the Mastodons fell out. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we have an entire exhibit just about the Mastodons that were found at Diamond Valley Lake. And it's uh, our team did a really good job. It's I, I know you guys said you enjoyed it when you came here, but I still, I walk in there and I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And it's the way it was set up too is so different from most exhibits. Yeah, I actually really like the way that a lot of, I mean, you're the biggest museum in Riverside County, but still relatively small museum. Mm -hmm. And the way that a lot of times the stuff is more out in the open. So it's not all behind glass and things like that. All the right. mastodon material you put out there, it's like it's just right in front of you. You can see it really mm -hmm. clearly. Mm -hmm. And in the jackets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was cool too. Yeah, most of that stuff has not been prepped out of the jackets yet. And so we thought, hey, that's a great opportunity to show what these things look like when they're coming out from the field because we had the Valley of the Mastodons workshop conference. Uh, Probocidian is the group of elephants. And so we brought in a, uh, a dozen Probocidian paleontologists to study our collections, because while the museum had been open for over 10 years, the collections really hadn't been intensely studied. And so we opened up the museum to them for three days before we opened the exhibit and said, go nuts. And so <laughs> if you guys remember the whiteboards that are that are there at the exhibit mm -hmm. where they made their initial observations and now they're, you know, back to their original homes and original institutions studying these mastodons and we're learning a lot, a lot of cool things. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Always excited to learn more about mastodons, you know, <laughs> especially about mastodons besides just, just besides Max. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Good segue. Let's talk about Max. <laughs> Max is fun. Max is great. If I say anything poor about him, he'll complain about me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so Max is the, uh, for your listeners, uh, Max is the largest Mastodon found on the West Coast currently. Um, he's a big boy. And uh, he is also on Twitter at Max Mastodon. He's kind of our museum mascot. He travels around the country. He goes out of the country. He's been to Canada. He's been to France. <laughs> So he is our little museum mascot, but yeah, he is a very impressive mastodon specimen. And, you know, there's evidence on his jaw of him getting into fights, which is totally in keeping with this fictional personality we've constructed on the internet for him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Brian Eng, who is a very accomplished paleo artist, actually made a life-size mural of a mastodon uh, fight for Valley of the Mastodons. And the inspiration for that piece was Max's jaw itself, which has evidence of possible um, encounters with other mastons and getting into fights, which is just, you know, so Max. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> and that actually makes me think it's interesting because we have the same kind of evidence from some ceratopsians where they have horn marks on one another. So it's interesting that you guys are going to do a ceratopsian mm -hmm. display. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're really excited to get that to get that ready. <laughs> That's cool. What kind of things does Max usually tweet? Oh, you know, he likes long walks in the Pleistocene. He <laughs> likes he likes Nutella because he's got a thing about hazelnuts. Ah, uh, who um, doesn't? Uh, well, you know, Mastodons <laughs> definitely ate hazelnuts back in the day. So oh, nice. just, we, we try to keep them to only one jar a day, but it's hard to it's hard to tell a Mastodon no. <laughs> he also likes to, you know, bother the other mammoths on Twitter, you know. Can't let them have all the fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, gotta gotta assert the Mastodon way, the Mastodon dominance. You know, <laughs> gotta let he has to let Twitter know that Mastodons are cool too. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Don't call him a mammoth on Twitter because he will flip. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's we have a lot of fun with Max. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, cool. So. Where would the best place be for people if they wanted to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at Brit and Bone, B-R-I-T-T and A-N-D-B-O-N-E. Um, that's also my handle for Instagram. Um, you can also check out our Museum Adventures for the Western Science Center on all social media platforms, Facebook, 
just type in Western Science Center, Western Science Center on Instagram and Western Center on Twitter. And like I said, Max is also on Twitter. So if you want to add a little bright spot to your day and watch a Mastodon complaint on Twitter, uh, you can find that at Max Mastodon. So yeah, you can find um, me or the museum um, on Twitter. You can also find links to our other staff members. Dr. Alton Dooley is also on Twitter and he does our Fossil Friday posts. So every Friday we feature something in the museum collections. And our curator, Dr. Andrew McDonald, is also on Twitter at Hippo Draco. The paleontology community on Twitter is amazing. I mean, yeah. that's how I met you. that's how I met you guys. And it's, <laughs> a, it's an amazing community to be a part of, and I absolutely love it. I've made a lot of friends and a lot of good uh, networking and colleagues on there. And just following scientists on Twitter is just fun, guys. Yeah, yeah, uh, it really is. If any of your listeners want a good time, follow some scientists on Twitter. <laughs> it is just the best. Yeah, especially the more vocal ones, which you can usually guess who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to name names, but yes. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for chatting with us. It's been no, great. Thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, I love talking about I love talking about science. I love talking about paleontology. I love talking about my job. So any opportunity to do that, I will take. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> just one last question. Just if any advice you would give to somebody who may not necessarily have like a hard science background, mm -hmm. but want to, want to get into it. Yeah. So I would definitely say volunteer. Um, find any avenue through which you can to do that. Um, more than likely, there may be a museum near you. That is probably the best way to get your foot in the door. Um, another way is to take a class or two. I knew that my science background was pretty deficient. So I've been taking biology, geology classes at a local community college. I just take one at a time. Um, I've been doing them in the evening or in the morning, um, you know, before or after work or online. And doing that has really helped me, you know, get the basics and make sure that my foundation in science is strong. So I would definitely recommend doing that, too, if you're like me and maybe you didn't um, get a science degree, but you're interested in one or you're interested in going into more of a science direction. And also get active in the community. Start reaching out to people for advice, for their tips. Before I worked at the museum, I started a now defunct blog about natural history and so that helped me kind of plug in, get aware about what was going on in the community and in paleontology. And so something like that can also be a really good resource. That's great. Yeah, I think your story is so inspirational. And, and Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, yes, of course. And thank you, guys. This is fun. Thanks so much, Brittany, for chatting with us. We really appreciated it. And we really enjoyed visiting the Western Science Center a few months back. Highly recommend it to anyone who is in the Southern California area. Especially once they have that sweet new Ceratopsian exhibit. Mm -hmm. And before we get into our dinosaur of the day, we're going to pause for a quick word from the Royal Tyrrell Museum. Every year, the Royal Tyrrell Museum hosts their speaker series, which brings world-renowned scientists and researchers to the museum and offers them a platform to discuss hot topics in paleontology, and share their results with the public. They're the only museum in Canada that's dedicated exclusively to the science of paleontology, and their speaker series is held primarily on Thursdays at 11 a.m. in the museum auditorium until April, and they also post all their videos on their YouTube channel. This week, there are actually two talks they have their regular Thursday talk, which will be Eric Scott from California State University. I'm not sure which one because they just say California State University. <laughs> but he's going to be talking about Ice Age horses of the American West, which I know a lot of people are interested in. But on Friday, on March 23rd... <laughs> Can you tell which one Garrett is <laughs> Yeah. Donald Henderson, who works at the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology. And Adrian... Karagusian from the Atelier Plantagenet workshop, and hopefully I pronounce that all decently. You definitely did better than I could, <laughs> but they're both going to be talking about feathered dinosaurs unleashed, which is really where the action is. I mean, I know Ice Age horses are cool, but feathered dinosaurs are awesome. So if you have a chance and you're anywhere near Drumheller, you should go to this talk on Friday. 
and see them explain feathered dinosaurs and check out some of the awesome exhibits at the museum. But if you can't make it, then you can go to their YouTube channel and you can watch these videos once I post them there. And you can get that link to their YouTube channel from our show notes, or you can just go straight to the Royal Tyrrell Museum to find out more about the speaker series at tyrrellmuseum.com. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Cosmoceratops, which was a request from Marcos via Facebook and Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. It was a Chasmosaurian ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Utah in the U.S., and its name means ornament horned face. It was found in the Kaiparowitz Formation in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and it was named in 2010 by Scott Sampson and others, along with Utah ceratops and Vagaceratops. The type species is Cosmoceratops richardsoni, and the species name is in honor of Scott Richardson, a volunteer who found the holotype and discovered two skulls. He found the first fossils in 2006. The holotype has a nearly complete skull, as well as vertebrae, ribs, hip, and partial rear leg, and they also found a referred specimen, a subadult with a disarticulated skull. It was herbivorous, about 14.8 feet or 4.5 meters long, and weighed about 2.5 tons, and the skull was about 6 feet or 1.8 meters long. It had the most ornate skull with the most horns of any known dinosaur. It had 15 horns or horn-like structures. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it had a very short frill, which was twice as wide as it was long, and it had two small holes in the frill and hook-like projections on the rim. The top of the frill had 10 small horns, and the eight horns in the middle curved down, and the two on the end projected to the sides. It also had a low nasal horn that looked like this blade-like structure. The holotype had a blunt tip. And it had brow horns above the eye sockets that projected to the sides, which is rare for ceratopsians because usually they curve forwards or backwards. And it also had one horn on each cheek. So all this ornamentation helps show horns and frills were for species recognition and display and for attracting mates, kind of like what peacocks do, and not necessarily for defense because these features were not great against predators. The sideways horns, as an example, would have been a way to lock heads and engage in ways to show dominance. Also, both males and females had similar horns, possibly so predators couldn't tell the difference because maybe they would have tended to go after the females. Huh. That's a weird speculation. Yeah, I never heard of that one before, but (laughs) it's interesting. Yes. Cosmoceratops and Utah ceratops helped to show the diversity of ceratopsians, as well as the existence of different pockets of dinosaur evolution. So Cosmoceratops lived in Laramidia, which was an island continent that's now western North America, and there were northern and southern provinces due to geological barriers, and Cosmoceratops and other Chasmosaurians were in the southern part. Eventually, though, the barriers went away and the two mixed. I like how they refer to them as provinces. Yeah. There's no evidence found yet of a physical barrier, but there may have been a previously unidentified mountain range or temporary flooding from a nearby sea or turbulent river or something else that caused this divide. The limitation on the gene pools due to the isolation might have been what allowed for more elaborate skull designs. Hmm. Cosmoceratops lived in warm, wet swamps, and Samson said, quote, at the time, this was very much a swamp environment and very lush. The climate was more Mediterranean. It would have been a great place to hang out, except for all the tyrannosaurs. <laughs> Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include Utah ceratops, Nasutoceratops, Hadrosaurs, Parasaurolophus, and Gryposaurus, and tyrannosaurs such as Teratophonius and Troodontids such as Talos. Both known Cosmoceratops specimens are now at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and you can see Cosmoceratops in the Past Worlds Gallery at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Nice. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact comes from the Knoll paper, which I talked about earlier. And the fact is that even though baby dinosaur slash birds or enantiornithes were allometric, they looked like babies and not just mini adults. That's mm. what allometric means. They still may have been precocial or semi-precocial, and that means that they may not have relied on their parents to take care of them. Then why did they look so cute? I don't know. But (laughs) basically, what they might have done is, I mentioned that MPCMLH26189A-B, (laughs) that 10-gram early Cretaceous 
in Antiornith didn't have its fully developed sternum and things like that to fly. So the assumption might be, oh, it isn't fully developed and therefore it needs something to take care of it. But really, it might have just walked or ran around to find food until it could fly. And maybe that explains how it got killed and fossilized. <laughs> it's running around on the ground or something and got stuck or trapped or buried or something. Oh. Yep. It's interesting because I usually think of you either are adult-like when you're born and you can take care of yourself or you look very different than the adult form and need the parent's help. But it turns out that's not always the case. Sometimes you still look like a baby but can take care of yourself. Pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends if you have friends who also like learning about dinosaurs. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes. We also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at inodino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to inodino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at inodino.